So this morning, as part of our message, we're going to be taking communion together. And if you're watching this through Facebook Live today, just want to encourage you to grab some bread, grab some juice, and you can join us later on when we partake in communion together. And today we're continuing our series called How to Neighbor. This is week three of the series, How to Neighbor. And what we're doing is we're looking at the teachings of Jesus on what it means to be a good neighbor. Jesus said that the greatest commandment, basically, in this, this entire book is summed up in one thing. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the Word of God points to that. Love God with your entire being and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see when the religious people of Jesus' day were trying to trap him with what's the greatest commandment, they, they were basically saying to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Because they want, it's easy to love people who are exactly like us. <laughs> people who kind of come from the same background, people who were raised in the same kind of economic class, people from the same country. Very easy to love people like us. But Jesus challenges the thinking of these religious people saying, no, 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 no. Your neighbor is your enemies. <laughs> Those who are far from God. People who are nothing like you. Because that's the challenge, right? It's, it's hard to love our neighbors who are not like us. And so the whole point of this series is to look at the teachings of Jesus because the teachings of Jesus do not change. The teachings of Jesus do not change, even though the culture that you and I live in today is rapidly and radically changing. When we talk about issues of morality and ethics, what we believe today is radically different than what we would have believed even 10 years ago. And so we need to look at how does the church respond to this. And today we're going to hit on probably the most difficult sermon I've ever preached. And so I really hope above all things what you hear today is love and grace and God's mercy, because I, I want to talk about the subject that I believe is the number one thing in our culture today that is dictating what non-Christians think of the church. And I want to talk about how the church is called to love our LGBTQ neighbors. In the room, the air just got sucked out of the room. Okay. And I'm going to admit, first off, this is a tip-of-the-iceberg sermon. There is no way in one three-and-a-half-hour sermon I can address <laughs> everything. <laughs> and our visitors just got real nervous. <laughs> no, it's not that long, I promise. But there is no way in one sermon I can address the deep issues on this topic. So this is really tip of the iceberg, but it's just been fascinating to me, even in the past week as I've been preparing this, the number of Christian organizations that are just making so much more information on this topic available. Just a couple of weeks ago in our Feb Central conference, they brought in a, a gentleman by the name of Sam Albury. Now, Sam Albury is a pastor in the UK who is same gender attracted and has chosen a life of celibacy in order to stay true to the teachings of Jesus. 
and, and he came and spoke to our, 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 our Fed Central region. Um, all of his teaching, I've made that available on, on the uh, Right Now uh, software that we have, so the Right Now media software where you have 10,000 different Bible studies available. If you have access to that, just click on the Greenbelt Library, and all that teaching is available. Check that out. It's great stuff. Great stuff. Someone who is speaking from right into that culture, right? Um, and if you don't have access to Right Now Media, just email me. It's free, completely free. Just email me, kevin at greenbelt.church, and I'll set you up and give you that. Other great resources that I just want to kind of highlight is a great book here by this guy named uh, Mark Yarhouse called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Great book. A great book on this topic. And to be honest, probably one of the best books I have ever read on this topic of how the church should respond, how the church can truly be loving while being true to what the Bible teaches uh, to our LGBTQ neighbors is Loving My LGBT Neighbor um, by uh, Glenn Stanton. This is put out by Focus on the Family. And so you know Focus on the Family, they hold to a traditional uh, view of marriage and, and the traditional view of gender roles, and this is phenomenal. A phenomenal book, I'd encourage. It should be mandatory reading for every Christian living in our culture today. Right? Because the culture that you and I live in has shifted. It has radically shifted on the topic of sexual ethics. And when we talk about the issue of sexual ethics, see, sexual ethics nowadays is not a topic that's based on scientific study. It's not Top, it's not based on research. It's not necessarily based on data analysis. It's now we find ourselves in a culture. We don't make decisions that way. We actually predominantly as a culture make decisions based on our intuition. It's not about facts and figures. It's about intuition. It, it just doesn't feel right. And Sam Albury gives a great example for how intuition works. And, and he talked about this, and he talked about this idea of, well, imagine you have a pet, and your pet dies, whether it's a little gerbil or your dog or your cat, and your, this pet that you've raised and you love so much and you've fed and you've cared for it, the pet passes away. Now, traditionally, what we do when a pet passes away, you know, we put get them in a little shoebox, and we put a little flowers in the shoebox, and we bury the shoebox out in the yard, and we have a little ceremony, or we flush the fish down the toilet, and we all pray around the toilet, you know, things like that. And it's all cute, and it's all beautiful, right? But what if, instead of doing that, well, here's this animal that we raised, we took good care of it, we fed it well, it got a lot of exercise. Well, before we do the burial, why don't we just kind of, you know, take the meat, you know, and kind of clean them up, skin them, take the good parts, you know, cook it up, fry it up, have a bit of a barbecue, and then take the remains and put that in the shoebox and then have our little ceremony. Okay, you're all looking at me with complete and total disgust. Why? That's your intuition kicking in. It just, it, it just doesn't feel right to do that to Fluffy. It just doesn't feel right to skin Nemo and fry him up and put a little garlic sauce, you know. Sorry, I'm pushing it, okay. It doesn't feel right. But you didn't do any data. You didn't analyze the meat, whether the meat was good or healthy. We didn't look at it that way, right. And that's where culture, that's where we're moving. We're moving into what feels right, right. And so Sam Albury, who I mentioned, uh, he's an apologist for uh, Ravi Zachariah Ministry. He's a pastor He's a celibate, same-sex attracted man, 
And he teaches that when it comes to sexual ethics today, when it comes to sexual morality in our culture today, predominantly culture asks itself three questions. It asks the question, is it harmful? Is it freeing or regressive? And is it fair or is it discriminatory? Right? And so when we talk about sexual ethics, we look at all the changes that have happened in the past 15 years. Like we can see leaders, political leaders who held to one position for so long completely change and take a different opinion. It's like they completely flipped their opinion. But it's because that when my two buddies get married, does that harm my marriage in any kind of way? No. <laughs> is it freeing? For them, is it regressive to not allow it? Is it fair that I can do it and they can't do it? Does it look discriminatory? See the tension when we look at it through that lens? And so our neighbors, our neighbors, the people that Jesus has called us to love, to love our neighbors, when they process those questions and see how we land as Bible-believing Christians, when they ask the question, is it harmful, is it freeing, is it regressive, is it fair, is it discriminatory? When they look at us and answer those questions, their response is, we, as the church, are unfair. That we are unloving and we are dangerous. The message in the culture today is, is it is the opinion of Bible-believing Christians that is causing teenage gay kids to commit suicide. They see us as dangerous. Now, 15 years ago, the viewpoint of the Bible and the viewpoint of the evangelical church was, well, you know, they're quaint and old-fashioned. And we'll just let them kind of, you know, live their quaint and old-fashioned life. Today, it's a different conversation. If the world sees us as unfair, unloving, and dangerous, how do we respond as followers of Jesus in that kind of climax? That's why this topic is so important to talk about. I believe the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. That's why we say one of our core values is to be real. We need to be real before a holy God who loves us, we need to be real with one another, with the stuff that, and the garbage that we deal with, and we need to be real with our neighbors, with our culture. There's a great passage in the Bible that talks about, in the Old Testament, talks about the, the, the elders of Israel. And it says that the elders of Israel were able to discern and to see where culture was going. That's what we need to be as a church community. We can't just be in our own little Christian bubble, <laughs> singing kumbaya and having our potlucks. But we have to understand where culture is going and how does the word of God, the unchanging word of God, still apply into this culture today. Because I firmly believe that the same gospel that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that saved me from my life of sin at the age of 28, the same power that changes lives empowers us to truly love our neighbors the way God calls his church to do so. And the same power can transform anyone. So let's look at that today. So I want to kind of break this down into different questions that we'll address. And the first question is, well, how did Jesus view this issue? 
how did Jesus view the issue of loving our LGBTQ neighbors? Right? And what's fascinating, when you study the church and when you see where the church is at, there is a huge spectrum of belief. I have met Christian pastors, Christian leaders that have kind of fully embraced the cultural view of sexual ethics and, and see no difference between same-gender marriage, uh, heterosexual marriage, or anything like that. So they fully embraced um, the cultural uh, uh, sexual ethic viewpoint, cultural ethics on gender, gender identity, and all of these things. And, and, and they're way over, they, they fully believe all that as Christian leaders. I've seen other Christian leaders who have gone militant the other way. I have met Christian leaders who have kicked their children out of their home when they came out of the closet. That's the spectrum. So what is a Christian really supposed to believe? Right? So we have to ask ourselves, who cares what our opinion is on the topic? What did Jesus think about this topic? If you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you should be following. Right? You got to know what Jesus believed if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, right? So what did Jesus say? Did Jesus speak directly on the subject of LGBTQ? No. <laughs> you see, it's one of those things, when the Bible is clear, do what the Bible says. <laughs> Problem is, when the Bible is not clear, you have to find the principles at play. Did Jesus speak on sexual ethics at all? Yes, Jesus did. Jesus spoke about sexual ethics. Now, here's the reality. In the culture that you and I live in, there are a lot of specific details Jesus didn't talk about. Right? Did Jesus talk about um, the fact that you as a Christian shouldn't stiff a waitress at the restaurant by not giving her a tip when she did an amazing job? No. So if you're at the restaurant, you go, ooh, I'm going to save some money. I'm not tipping her. Ha, ha, ha. Well, you know what? Because Jesus didn't say I, I can't do that. Well, Jesus said to be generous. Right? Jesus said be generous. So if you're kind of going to the restaurant, you're going, oh, I'm only going to give 10%. I'm only going to give 4%. I'm not going to give nothing. They don't deserve a tip. And Jesus says be generous. Okay? So that's how this works. Just because Jesus didn't directly say something, Jesus still addresses these issues, right? And so there's this great story in Matthew chapter 19, where again, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. And they were trying to trap Jesus on the topic of divorce. Is it lawful for a man to leave his wife for any reason? Right? And Jesus replies to them in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, haven't you read? Love that. Jesus going to people, the religious leaders, the people who know the entire Old Testament by heart. I always find it amazing, you know, when we try to get our kids to memorize a verse. And we give them a sticker if they pull it off. <laughs> Can you imagine? Take your kids and try and get them to memorize the entire Old Testament. The whole thing. They did it. That's what these religious leaders were capable of doing. They knew the whole Old Testament by heart. And Jesus looks at these people going, haven't you read it? You know it by heart. But haven't you read? And then Jesus continues that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
so there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Like right here in this passage, like so these religious leaders, they're trying to trap Jesus because what they're trying to basically get him to say is, well, if Jesus agrees and says, well, you know, you can get a divorce for any reason, well, then the religious leaders are going to slam Jesus and attack Jesus. Like, oh, look, Jesus doesn't care about sin. Jesus is soft on sin. But then if they turn around, if he turns around and says, no, you know, we're going to be really hard line on divorce. Well, where Jesus was actually doing this teaching was under the jurisdiction of King Herod. And if you're not familiar who King Herod is, King Herod was a guy who left his wife to marry somebody else. And John the Baptist called him out on that, said, what you just did isn't right. You just sinned before God. And what happened to John the Baptist? He got his head cut off for telling the king that. So these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. Either the crowds are going to hate him because of what he's saying, that he's too, that, you know, he's just allowing it, or King Herod's going to hate him and cut off his head. And Jesus points back to the creative narrative. He points back, like he's talking specifically about gender issues here, male and female. He's talking about marriage issues, male and female coming together as one flesh, Right? So Jesus didn't speak directly to it, but he gives us this overarching theology, this overarching viewpoint of mankind's creation in the image of likeness of God. Jesus affirms gender, male and female. He adjourns male and female in marriage. But then how does Jesus respond to the issue? Right? We, we can get a picture and a glimpse here of what Jesus believes, but how do we see Jesus respond Again, when the Bible is clear, do what the Bible says. But when the Bible's not clear, we've got to find these principles. And again, we don't have a story directly of Jesus dealing with LGBTQ people. But we see Jesus dealing with sinners all the time. Why do we sing songs that say, Jesus, friend of sinners? Maybe because he was a friend of sinners. And we can see a great example of this in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, this is where he brings Matthew to become one of his disciples. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, these religious elitists, saw this, they asked his disciples. They don't even go to Jesus. They go around Jesus to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, back in Israel, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders would classify sinners. They kind of had their order of which sins were worse. And so basically they would take every sin that was possible under the Torah, under the laws, under the 613 tradition of the elders, and they would classify them. And basically they would say, well, all of these combined are horrible, but tax collectors are even worse. (laughs) Like if you did 
broke all of these 613 commands and you were a tax collector, you were worse than that person. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. The people that these religious people wanted nothing to do with because what they were doing was they were stealing from their own people. Like they're part of God's covenant community and they were just looking out for themselves. You know, they could walk up to you at any time. You could be out plowing your field and the tax collector would show up and say, you, you owe taxes. And if you didn't pay it on the spot, they would get the Roman centurions to come and beat you or bring you off to jail or do even worse. Like scum of the earth. People that religious people should never be seen with. And what does Jesus do? Eats with them. You see, and Jesus' culture, eating together is incredibly powerful. Right? Eating together is a sign of hospitality. It's a sign of welcome. It's a sign of belonging. Now, did Jesus agree with their lifestyle? No. Is it possible to still be welcoming and loving even though we are in disagreement of a lifestyle? Yes. That's what Jesus models to us. I was taking a, a course in um, ethical theology. If you really want like, just to see your brain explode, take like uh, a theology of ethics is what this course was called. And we had to go through stuff like, you know, mom is on life support system. The daughter wants to unplug. The son wants to keep or the mother on life support system. And they come to you, pastor, what should we do? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I'm busy. I got another meeting. You know, like it was like those kind of questions, like real world questions, stuff the Bible doesn't directly answer. And the question we had to write a paper online for all the students to contribute to this online. And the question was real simple. Would you attend a gay marriage? Oh, again, tip of the iceberg talk, right? Tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot of issues in there. But I responded based on Matthew nine. Yes. I would go. And then one of the other students lambasted me like I have never been lambasted before in my life. I was called a heretic. I was, I was, actually, I was actually told online that I'm probably not saved and they are going to contact Greenbelt's elders to have me removed. I don't know if they did that. Um, I'm still here. So I figured that didn't go anywhere. But based on Matthew 9... I can be welcoming without affirming. I can be loving without agreeing, based on Matthew 9. And again, tip of the iceberg, because, again, what was Jesus' viewpoint with dealing with sinners? Tells us, John tells us Jesus' viewpoint in John chapter 3. Like, we know John chapter 3, verse 16 by heart. Everyone knows this passage. Even non-Christians know it because the Christians are there at the football games with John 3.16 written on their signs, right? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But you continue, continue this and you truly see what the heart of God is, the heart of Jesus is. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but listen to this, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. 
because they've not believed in the name of God. The world that you and I live in today is condemned already. And the call of Christians is to love our neighbors. To love our neighbors. To love our neighbors. Right? What I love about this reminder in John chapter 3, it reminds me that I'm a sinner. Freed from any condemnation. Not by anything that I have done, but simply by the grace and love of God. Right? That we are all broken. We all deal with sin. When it comes to sexual sin in our culture today, there is no us and them. There is no the church versus the LGBTQ community. But pastor, the Bible clearly says that homosexuality is an abomination in the eyes of God. And we could go there in the Old Testament and look at those verses. And I'm not going to. Because I could easily go to a whole bunch of other verses in the Old Testament that say the devious person, the crooked heart, the lying lips, thoughts of wickedness and lust, arrogance, pride, scoffing, are all abominations in the eyes of God. There's no us and them. There's just us. Hurt, broken, Lost, sinful people. All of us in our sin was an abomination to God. Membership in the abomination club is free. The only thing that membership requires is humanity. We're all members of that. And Romans 3 verse 23-25 reminds us that all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The Apostle John writes in First uh, John 1, eight says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's no us and them. We're broken. We're wounded. And what sets us free from that brokenness is not our religion. It's not our tradition. It's not anything, but it's the power of Jesus. It's his forgiveness. It's his body. It's his blood that was broken and beaten and spilled for us. That in any way makes us righteous. It's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. So what I want to do, I'm going to get into some specifics on how the church can truly be good neighbors, how we can love our LGBT community. But before we can talk about that, I want us to take a moment to remember what Jesus has done for us. I want us to take communion together. And this is a time where if you have put your faith in Jesus, regardless of your Christian background, whatever church denomination you came from, if you put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins. You're welcome at this table. Uh, The ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take a piece of bread. I'd ask that you'd hold it, and then we'll take it together. Then they're going to pass a cup. Take it, hold it together. If you're watching this online, now grab a piece of bread. Grab some juice. You can participate, even at home from online. Um, But I want you to just remember what you've been saved from, (laughs) that you've been set free from sin. 
you've been set free from the penalty of sin, of death that we should have received. (laughs) That we were sinful, we were broken, but we've been set freed from that. That we have received a love from God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So I want us to take a moment and remember that. That's what Jesus said to do. When we gather, we take the bread, we take the cup as an act of remembering what we've been saved from. Because before we can look at how to love others, we've got to just take a moment and remember how much we've been loved. So I'm going to call our deacons and elders forward and hand us out. And if you're here today and you would say, you know, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not too sure what I believe. You know, it's awesome that you're here. We really hope you get plugged in and, 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 and just kind of participate in the life of the church here. But I would just ask that you would let these things go by, and there's nothing wrong with that, but this is kind of really for Christians to take a moment and reflect. But man, if you're here today and you're ready to accept that, you can do that real easily. (laughs) Just when you're holding that piece of bread in your hand saying, you know, I don't fully understand this, but today I want Jesus in my life. And you can take communion with us for the very first time just by saying a simple prayer like, God, forgive me of my sin (laughs) and make me new. Thank you that Jesus died for me. And that brings you into the family of God that easy let's take this bread and this cup together so on the night when jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and i love that picture of brokenness of bread rip the bread you see how the bread falls apart it crumbles jesus said this represents my body the body of jesus broken torn ripped crumbling can't be put back together and Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. We do this in remembrance of him. So in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took a cup. He said, the wine in this cup represents my blood, the new covenant in my blood. See, the old covenant was like these 613 do's and don'ts that people had to obey to be righteous. And Jesus has come in fulfillment of all of those His new covenant, his blood is what sets us free. Let's do this in remembrance of him. So what is the church's role in all of this? If we truly want to be men and women, boys and girls, that love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves, what is the church's role in loving our LGBTQ neighbors, right? If we, as the church, as Christians, are perceived as being unfair and unloving and dangerous, then what is our response to that? You see, we could just go through the Bible, and as we're talking to our neighbors, our LGBTQ neighbors, we could say, well, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, Why do we expect secular, non-Christian people to care what the Bible says? (laughs) They don't believe it's the word of God. They don't believe in God. And we just go around yelling and screaming with signs saying the Bible says. We need a better response than the Bible says. (laughs) It's not about them to change their minds. It's not on them to change their minds. It's on us to show we're not those things it's on how you and i live our lives to show that we are not unfair we're not unloving and we're not dangerous 
So how can we do that? There's three ideas from the teachings and examples of Jesus. I encourage you to write these down and talk about them in your life group this week. Um, But the first is to be loving. The church's role in loving our LGBTQ neighbors is to be loving, right? Christianity is a hard calling, not because we're called to love people like us. It's a hard calling because Jesus calls his followers to love our enemies. That's hard, (laughs) Jesus said to pray for the people who are persecuting you. If someone sues you for your coat, give your shirt as well. If someone says, carry the cross a mile, go two miles. (laughs) The teachings of Jesus are we need to be radical lovers of people. And I realize that sounds funny. But we need to be people who love. We are known for our love. And that can be hard especially when loving people who disagree, that we disagree with. You know, I said this before, and I say this all the time, whenever opportunity I have, I have great friends and family members who are part of the LGBTQ community. And I truly love them. They're great people. And I don't love them as an evangelistic project. I love them because God loves them. I love them because they're people created in the image and likeness of God. I have great friends in that community, and I would, it would sadden me deeply to lose those friendships because of the fact that I do hold a position of traditional marriage, that I do hold a position that there are only two genders, that gender is not fluid. I hold these positions as a follower of Jesus, but I hope... When I get arrested one day and thrown in jail because I'm refusing to do same-sex marriage, it's coming, and it will probably be me. I just have a vision of it, but I hope I'm known for my love. That my friends would go, wait a minute, he's not like that, even though we disagree. And it's not easy. It's so much easier to fight. It's so much easier to be angry. But Jesus on the cross looked at his enemies, the men who hung him there, who beat him to a pulp where he was bleeding to death on the way to the hill where they crucified him. And as he's on the cross, breathing his last, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The call is to be loving. Even in our disagreement, the call is to be loving. Even when we're persecuted, the call is to be loving. Even if we're crucified, the call is to be loving. That's the first thing Jesus models. What is the church's role? The church's role is to be loving. I can't control if someone hates me. I can't control if someone wants to no longer be my friend. I have lost dear friends over this issue. I can't control that. I can just always be loving and always welcome them back into a meaningful friendship, even in our disagreements. Jesus, they will also hate you. And when Jesus commissions his followers out into the world 
to love and to bring healing and to do miracles and to teach about the kingdom of God. He tells them to be as gentle as doves, to be loving. But he also says, be wise as serpents. Be wise in this culture that we live in today. Right? Living in grace and truth in all of our relationships and all of our friendships, it takes humble wisdom. Sam Albury, in one of the talks that he gave at Feb Central, said this. He said, when we're addressing these questions with people from this community, he says, don't answer the question. Engage with the question. seen that play out in your life. Use wisdom in your conversations. The Bible says, ask for wisdom and it will be given to you. I think more Christians need more wisdom on this topic. Just a piece of advice. Stop arguing with people on Facebook. It doesn't work. Stop it. Stop it. You're making it harder for the rest of us. Because there are paid trolls on the internet who just like to stir the pot. It doesn't go anywhere. Use your head. The Bible says, ask for wisdom. It will be given to you. The Bible says, you know what's also wise? Not talking. I speak for a living. You know how hard it is for me to be quiet? It takes a Holy Spirit miracle of God to get me to shut up. Okay? Bite the tongue is a great way to show wisdom sometimes. Stay out of social media debates and arguments. Bite our tongue. Pray for wisdom. It takes humility and gentleness to be wise in this culture, in this world that we live in. And then the last point is to be influential. To be influential in our relationships. Jesus tells his followers that they are the light of the world that you are the salt of the earth. Being light in a world of darkness is a huge privilege. I'm actually quite thankful for the debates and the conversations that we get to have today. I know there are people who wish the church was like it was and culture was like it was in the 50s. The problem is in the 50s when everyone thought they were Christian, I think a lot of people were surprised that they didn't enter the gates of heaven. That they may have heard the voice of Jesus say, away from me, I didn't know you. When culture thinks it's Christian, a lot of people have missed out on the true gift of Jesus because they were just doing church. In a culture of darkness, the light shines even brighter. I believe that there's a day coming, kind of the lukewarm church in Canada, it's not needed anymore. The cultural Christian church in Canada, God doesn't need that anymore. He needs men and women, boys and girls who are loving, who are wise, and who are influencing people by loving them, by pointing them to the truth of God, right? That's what the light does. And salt changes things. If you are at a nice restaurant and the person before you unscrewed the cap of salt, anyone, has that ever happened to you? That's happened to me at Red Lobster. 
That was a $40 meal. Put a little salt. You can't fix that. The food has changed. That's what salt does. Because of the relationships that we have, people are changed. That's having influence in the world. Right? If people see us as unfair and as unloving and as dangerous, the only way that we can have influence is to learn how to have a conversation respectfully, to be civil, to be peaceful. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Are you stirring the pot with your angry words? Or are you being peaceful and civil in order to truly have influence in a world that hates Jesus and hates his followers? You see, every generation of Christians have experienced deep blessings and movements of God. If you study church history, you will see it again and again and again and again, these deep blessings and these deep revivals and these massive moves of God in every generation of the church for the past 2,000 years. For the past 2,000 years, every generation of Christians has had amazing opportunities to bring the gospel around the world. And every generation of Christian for the last 2,000 years have had challenges and have had dangers. Our generation is no different. I think this issue is our challenge. I think this issue can be dangerous. But God loves them. God loves us. Our LGBTQ neighbors are not a project, but they are an opportunity for the family of God to show the love of God through our actions, through our words, through our deeds, and by the power of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, we're all broken. On the issue of sexuality, all of us are broken. We are a sexually broken species because of sin. We've all used sin the wrong way. We've all had lustful thoughts, the internet. We've all used sex for self-gratification. We've used sex to manipulate. We've used sex in crazy ways. We are all broken sexually. And it's only Jesus that makes people whole. So the call is for us to be loving, to be wise, and to be influential for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that we as a church family can talk about the difficult topics, the not easy topics. And I realized this morning that this message is tip of the iceberg. And so many of us are dealing uh, with this issue of sexual morality in our culture today, sexual ethics in our culture today. And it's so hard for us to know how to respond. We've got family members that are part of this community that we love. We have friends and colleagues at work. We've got friends in our high schools that are part of this community. And it can be so difficult for us, Lord, to know how to respond. But as we look to Jesus, as we look to his teaching, as we look to his example, we can see that Jesus ate with sinners, that he welcomed sinners, that he was a friend of sinners, that he brought them into community. 
He didn't try to see them changed first, to accept and believe first before coming into community. They were brought into community first, and then the power of the Holy Spirit that changes, that influences. So God, I pray for us that we would learn to love well, that we would be wise, and that ultimately we would be influential. And I pray that we would be able to do all that in truth, standing firm on the teachings of Jesus and the word of God, but being humble in that belief as well.